one study that looked at 958 male and female student-athletes from Division I colleges in nine different sports from 2007 to 2011. 28% of them reported anxiety symptoms. 22 reported depression symptoms. Half of those had a combination of both, and those with depression were more likely to have anxiety. 38% of the athletes who reported anxiety symptoms had a significantly higher injury rate. Anxiety increases injury risk in males by two and a half times and females by 1.9 times. I am the host of the Sports Medicine Broadcast, which came here for Shauna Erickson, working on her PhD in athletic training, athletic therapy, and she is studying the psychological risk factors for injury. So I also have Eli Kassab with me. Um, you know, we've talked to him about mental clarity with Todd, and we'll be, we'll be back talking about that. And obviously, we talked about his podcast where he shares more and more of his story. So um, Shauna is going to share more about that study that she she gave me there and the, the details about the psychological risk factor for injuries. But this is definitely something that over the years I've learned. And when we talked to Robert Andrews, and again, Todd was part of that, and just the mental imagery, or I think the di- he said something like didactic imagery, something like that. So it's basically your tricking your mind to to go through that same injury without the injury so if you you know did a play in tore your ACL well you just replay that play in your mind but without tearing your ACL and it reduces the psychological risk because you're mentally clearing yourself up so that a different so many different aspects and so so much still to learn but obviously Shauna is the reason we're here this is sports medicine broadcast.com slash psychological risk factors Again, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash slash psychological risk factors. So, Shauna, in that study, it said that the anxiety symptoms had a significantly higher injury rate, and then it said 16.9% in non-anxiety people. I don't really know what that means. Can you start off by telling me just what that means? Um, so... I think uh, it's the statistic based on the questionnaire that they used because they used a a measure for depression and a measure for anxiety. And I believe the measure for depression was the um, epidemiology, I can never say that word, epidemiology um, for depression. And the second one was the state trait anxiety uh, measure. So I think they used, um, they got the percentages based off of the uh, population of students. and that's how the percentage of the students that reported those scores. So I, I kind of jumped right into it. And I, and I forgot to mention, uh, Shauna is an athletic trainer. She said she did her schooling down here in Louisiana. So down here close to me. Luckily, you're gone now because they've had like three hurricanes in the last month or something like that. Um, yep. <laughs> so My right family's still there, though. <laughs> yeah, right now she's living up in Canada. And like, she, like I said, she's working on her PhD there. Um, so one of the things like on Instagram is kind of where we connected there. Um, and you share a lot of your stories with injuries and things like that. And, and some of the adventures you've gone on. Right. And so one of the thing, one of the stories I remember was you like almost falling off a cliff, riding your bike, uh, on the side of a mountain or something <laughs> like that. Like, that's... Yeah. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, I have a feeling that it's uh, similar for a lot of athletic trainers. Like we tend to learn more about injuries through our own and uh, that way we can sympathize a lot better with our athletes to understand what they're going through and the feelings and the descriptions of pain are a lot easier to grasp, whether just from reading from a textbook and actually experiencing them ourselves. So 
Um, I try to diversify, diversify my activities. And one of them is uh, mountain biking. And I recently started that last year. So when I made the move from Oregon to uh, Montreal, I kind of made it into a bike trip. And so I stopped in Moab, which is kind of like one of the epicenters of mountain biking. And they have a trail that's kind of like the once in a lifetime quintessential ride and it's a shuttle ride. So they shuttle you up with your bike to the, um, oh no, I'm forgetting the mountains, but it's Los, oh my gosh, I forgot the mountains. But anyway, it's a mountain range. They shuttle you up there and then you ride downhill basically for 26 miles back into Moab. Um, so that segment of my picture was one of the hardest, uh, spots. There's a split, there's a, a black diamond, and then there's a double black diamond. The black, double black is called the notch. The double, the single black is called, um, the snotch. So what it is, is it's basically like a way to transition down the cliff side into the valley. And, um, you kind of have to like, it's like shelving. And so we ended up having to like passing our bikes down the first part because there's no way I'm not good enough to be able to transition down. But once we get to a little ledge, there's kind of a clearance of maybe like 20 yards where it's like, okay, well, I'll get on and ride this part to the next little shelving that we have to climb down. So in the middle of that clearance, there's this boulder. And I don't know what happened, but I ended up stalling on the boulder. And instead of falling into the wall, I fell down and the tree caught my fall, thankfully, otherwise I would have kept falling through. And just in time for my friend to get into the other little corner to be like, hey, I'm taking a picture. <laughs> and it was perfect. So yes, <laughs> right, so, that's what that's So keep going, keep going with the story. So we're talking about psychological risk factors. You said you, in your trek from the West Coast to the East Coast, um, you we're doing a bike trip. So right here in the middle of your trip, you almost fall off the cliff. And what does that do to you that when you have to finish riding that 26 miles or when you stop for the next bike trip? So talk to me a little bit about that. Oh my goodness. So it was so awful because I had ended up planning the next day to go to Arches National Park as well. I was also working a lacrosse tournament in Vail. Like I was arriving that Sunday to work the tournament for three days. And um, so I knew right away it wasn't going to be good. And I felt it in my knee, like that initial achy pain. And then I got up and started like, you know, evaluating myself the best I could. And I was twisting it, doing a little like thessaly on myself. I was like, well, this is not going to be great. And so I told them and I knew I didn't want to get hella backed out of there because that would have been very expensive. And I knew that I wanted to finish. So I got on my bike and as I started pedaling, because there's no impact or no torsion on it, and I ride in flat pedals, I don't ride in clip pedals. So I, I actually felt better by moving it. So once I like got in my head, I was like, oh, this is actually going to be probably better for it. Like if I keep moving it and if it's not too serious, like it wasn't super painful to step on it. So um, I just kind of like kept cruising and, you know, biking outside in a new environment. Everything's so exciting anyways that I think it just kind of like went into the backside until I got to another tricky part where I could kind of feel the tweak. Um, and I was more careful with other harder features as opposed to just pushing myself. Like I would get off and walk the bike until I figured out that it actually was more painful to walk over the feature. So sometimes I would just go over it anyway. So it was a mixture of emotions. 
did you cancel that second day, the arches day of bike riding? Uh, yes, I did. Because what happened was when we finally finished the ride, um, I got to their campsite. And that's when I think all of the pain and the swelling started really setting in. Um, and it was pretty bad. Uh, and uh, since we did the whole enchilada, we ended up going to get Mexican food and I couldn't help but get some margaritas to help <laughs> congratulate myself and maybe ease the pain, even though I know that alcohol doesn't mix well with new injuries. So um, thankfully, I actually had my brace, my knee brace from when I tore my PCL in my car with all of the rest of my belongings. And I broke that puppy out, put it on, wrapped it, and then I went back to the hostel and elevated it. I didn't get to explore Moab. I just went to the uh, pharmacy, bought some insects, and kind of laid up that evening. Um, called my boyfriend who I was moving towards and uh, told him everything that happened. And so the next day I just kind of waited until checkout for the hostel and I drove straight to Ville and had my co-workers kind of evaluate it and see what was going on. So um, yeah, it cut my trip a little bit short, but um, it, it is what it was. And I know I'll have the opportunity to go back and explore more. So yeah. All right. So were you already planning on doing a PhD in psychological risk factors before this, or did this contribute in any way? Um, yes. Well, that was the the major reason I was moving was to come here to go to school. Um, I, when I first, I knew eventually I wanted to do a PhD. Like it was, it's always been a lifetime goal of mine to kind of like go all the way in school. And I thought PhD was where it stopped. And then I started learning about postdoctorates and fellowships and everything like that. So I'm just going to put the PhD as the cutoff point right now. But um, I didn't know that I would be pursuing it so soon, to be honest with you, because I had just moved to Oregon and um, got a new position there at an outreach facility called the Center Foundation. And uh, three months after I moved there, I met my now boyfriend, who is from here in Canada. And when we started talking and he knew that I was interested in pursuing my PhD, he had asked if I had, you know, looked into Canadian schools. And honestly, I hadn't. That was kind of like the last place I was going to be looking uh, for an unknown reason, right? And so when I started looking, there was Concordia here in Montreal that was near him, um, called and spoke with the director. And what, when I came out for a visit, we met and we just kind of hit it off. And his research is uh, kind of in the mental aspects as well. It's more like pain-related fear. He develops the athletic pain-related fear questionnaire. Um, so we kind of both connected on the mental aspects and and while I hadn't applied to come th that fall, um, he encouraged me that he would keep me updated. And so he ended up offering me the position in the spring. And it kind of all just transitioned within a couple of months. Um, so that's how that happened. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, it's crazy, interesting. And, and, you know, just it's funny the way, the way our life events shape where we're going. Just like you, I was talking about how... You know, he was burnt out from working 16-hour days in the NFL and then pretty much was, like, depressed and had some of this other issues and health issues going on. So, uh, Eli, let's get to asking some of the psychological risk factors for injury questions that Shana, Shana has learned about. So what you got to start with, Eli? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of interested. You made an interesting comment um, when, you know, talking about after that, that accident, you mentioned uh, you being able to – kind of know like, oh, well, hey, that trip's always going to be there. 
and I'm going to be back in a few, I can always come back in a few months. And so I'm kind of like interested because like, it's all about mindset and perspective, right? It's all kind of how you look at things and how you kind of mentally process situations and things that happen in your life and perspective is kind of, is kind of key. And so I'm kind of interested in, in, in that perspective that you took on it. Cause obviously you can go either way, you know, you can get into that perspective of like, Oh wow, this is something that can, uh, like, you know, everything's bad, this sucks. And you can kind of go into more of the negative side of things, but mm-hmm. to kind of stop and look and think like, okay, like, was that, was that pretty natural for you to kind of, you know, more look at it as well? It's like, okay, it's okay. I gotta always come back later. Um, that's something that, you know, I, I don't, I don't see, I don't see personally, uh, I feel like majority of people are more on the negative side of things um, mm-hmm. and don't necessarily keep that perspective. So what was your, like, what's your, like, what was your mindset like and your perspective that kind of like, you know, kind of led you to go more down that path versus down the other direction where it's like, oh, this, you know, everything's bad. This sucks. My life, you know, and then getting into that whole rabbit hole of, of negative thoughts. Yeah, no, that's a good question. And it's funny because I actually enrolled myself into, into like a self-learned mindfulness-based stress reduction course. Um, to kind of help with my studies and the eventual programs I'm going to use. And I, you know, found out about the happiness set point, which is, you know, very similar to our, um, our weight set point, right? So different people experience different external happenings and stressors that um, no matter what happens, we can always kind of reboot and come back to our home base or our happiness set point. And it's different for everybody. And some might have been more been born happier than others and um i firmly believe my happiness set point was kind of high i don't know why um but i've always been kind of been able to uh you know take a situation and as unfortunate as it is um it's not the end of the world and while i have been a competitive athlete and i have high expectations of myself performance wise Um, And I can ride myself pretty hard too, especially like if I think I'm failing at something. But I think in that moment, because I had so much other things going on and I was moving towards a complete transition in my career, a new life and creating like a home with my boyfriend and expanding our relationship and moving to a new country, being an international student. There was just, I think so much else looking that I was looking forward to that in that moment, Um, Just being in Moab, being able to bike that specific trail in my first season of mountain biking was pretty epic in in the first place. So to have kind of a little bit of a setback where, okay, it didn't go as I expected, but um, to be able to get out of there in one piece and knowing what I know and having my background and being able to like have access to the resources uh, as the athletic trainers at the camp. Like I knew I was going to be going to see them. So I knew I was going to be taken care of. I knew that I could take care of myself. And it wasn't like an end all be all for me um, because I experienced injuries like that before. So um, I knew that based on my strength level that I was going to recover quicker um, and I wasn't going to be out of biking forever. So it wasn't like a, a season ending sort of injury it was just a, a momentarily setback <clears throat> so i think that's where i was at with that nice that's awesome i think you know and uh you mentioned that 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 mental that kind of mental uh, mental clarity but the, like the happiness portion now was that you said it was like like a 
a so program or a, a course or something like that that you were doing? Yeah, so there's a free course online. Uh, it's pop, uh, I'm trying to think of what it's called. So it's the palacemindfulness.com. And he created the uh, mindfulness project at the University of Massachusetts Health Center. And so he delivers an eight week course online that's free um, and it's self-taught. So he provides the videos, he provides the literature and you kind of just go through it on a weekly basis. And then you're responsible for being involved in the mindfulness practice, like the informal and the formal practices. Um, so I was looking because my supervisors and I had talked about um, me potentially delivering a mindfulness training program to the athletes that I'm doing research with. And like, personally, I was like, oh, I've never done that before. Like I've practiced mindfulness personally, but as far as like yeah. feeling competent to deliver the program myself, I don't know what to say or what to do. So um, they said, maybe you should take a course. And a lot of the courses I had looked at were at least 500 Canadian. Um, so I found this one and it was a free course. And I said, this could be like a, as good as it gets right now. So that's what I decided to do. And it's been great on my second week. So, and that's what I found out about the happiness set point, which was perfect for your question. <laughs> for, uh, yeah. yeah, that was, I was always interesting to kind of like what leads to those, to those changes. You know, it's always interesting. Like I thought maybe, you know, there was something that had happened prior that led you to maybe doing something like that. Um, and so that's why I was like, it was interesting to, to hear because it's always, what's a deciding factor? Like, why do we head down, you know, you know, make certain decisions on certain paths? Um, and yeah, so, like, I mean, it's all about the history of our stressors, right? So we all cognitively, cognitively appraise stressors differently and process them in a different way, just based on our upbringing, our experiences, like our previous injuries, our coping mechanisms, everything is different and varies from person to person. So um you can never really anticipate what's going to happen or how someone's going to react right exactly exactly have you and how has that been able now obviously like in in with you know with athletes and in the clinical setting um how has that helped you know i know the experience itself like going through that accident and everything can help relate but does going through that course as well as they'll like trying to make uh, an effort to to gain a different perspective and a different mindset has that been able to translate over into the clinical setting outside of you personally in your own mindset perspective has that been able to translate you know with yeah in the clinic with the athletes as far as you be able to relate to them or kind of help guide them if there are those that are looking for to just to do something similar mm -hmm. um well i mean currently i'm not in a clinical base like i don't okay. um see athletes like when they're like i'm not on the field practicing as an athletic trainer right now um gotcha, gotcha. but i am strength training uh one-on-one -on -one, so it, it does help in my coaching um where i am perceptive in picking up emotions or anxiety um especially like if you like you can internally feel that something's off with your athlete and i think that mm -hmm. has always been like i was practicing for eight years before i decided to go back to school so i think there was we were always um had that intuitive feeling i mean as athletic, athletic trainers we have that and we know when something's not right with our athletes and so being able mm -hmm. to just open up the dialogue um and getting athletes comfortable with letting themselves explain or even verbalize how they're feeling right 
Um, and I, I definitely took time to be able to do that when I was practicing in the high school setting. And because um, they, I mean, it's the same with describing pain. They were always kind of uh, unsure of like, well, it hurts. And, okay, well, how does it hurt? Like, does it feel like this? Or we would give them those segues to kind of like be able to think about it and critically, um, you know, process what's happening to them. So I think that plays in part with their emotional uh, status as well as their injury status too. So um, I was always constantly trying to do that with athletes and um, trying to get a better understanding of everything else that was going on outside of their sport. So um, just like how is school going? Is it finals? Um, are you having extra loads of homework? Um, you know, and just depending on their situation at home, like are your parents helping? Are they providing more pressure. Um, so a lot of different perspectives that went into it to be able to talk about all of those different things with them when you get the opportunity, like they're in there, like talk to them about everything you potentially can't write. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. No, yeah. And that's, that's the thing. Sorry, Jeremy, feel free. Sorry. I, I, I'm kind of just keep going, but if you, <laughs> okay. Um, so, I, I okay. So since, since you jumped in there, <laughs> since you jumped offered me, I do want to say, I am not the natural athletic trainer with the emotional IQ, right? If honestly, I swear, if I hadn't been, if we hadn't done foster care and then to do the trauma-based care tra or trauma-informed care stuff with the TBRI, then I probably would still be like emotionally dumb. I, I don't even, <laughs> I don't know like what it is, but I just didn't process people's emotional needs. So it was just... Yeah, so not everybody is that intelligent, okay? I was going to say, no, not everyone has that natural capability. We're not all super attuned to emotions. Um, and I think it, it it just is based on the person, too. Um, I don't know how I became so emotionally attuned to people or perceptive. Um, and from, like, when I was 18 and I random fact, I traveled around with a hypnotist for a summer, but, um, and so she ended up telling me that I was a natural healer and that I had a very spiritual, um, kind of personality or a persona about myself. And I never really thought of it that way. And I was like, Oh, okay. So then when I started like dealing with athletes on a one-on-one -on -one basis and like, I would ask them if everything was okay. And they're like, no, how did you know that? You know, those types of uh, responses. And like, well, I don't know. I'm just asking. <laughs> so I think it, yeah, I think it just definitely varies on person to person. <laughs> I definitely want to get back to the psychological risk factors, but you can't just say I traveled around with a hypnotist. For summer <laughs> and then <you're> <laughs> I thought you would kind of like blaze over that. <laughs> no, come on, let's go. Okay. Um, so what happened, what happened was I, uh, went to a, uh, we went to an amusement park at Six Flags in, um, Valencia, California, and it was the Halloween, like their fright fest, uh, thing, but it was during my brother's birthday. So then we found out there was a hypnotist show and I had actually never been to one. And so we went to it and it was the hypnotist show where you have every all of the volunteers on stage and you know she induces you and then you kind of like you get commands or uh, suggestions to do things and it's filmed and it's funny and we laugh and then they wake you up well I was a volunteer and um, I came back to the audience and my mom was telling me all the things I had done I didn't remember any of them and 
then the following week, my mom called to order some of her self-hypnosis CDs and ended up speaking with the hypnotist herself. And of course, my mom, being who she is, you know, if you ever need any help, my daughter would love to help you. And uh, so that's how that began. And she's like, actually, like my assistant's going to be gone this weekend. I could use an extra set of hands. So I drove down. She paid for my gas, my hotel, like the whole weekend was paid for. Plus, I got paid to be her assistant. Um, so it was basically a stage assistant with a hypnotist for that short time. And then a few years later, she asked me to travel around with her for the summer. And we ended up going to Hawaii twice um, and all up and down California for uh, fair shows. So it was a very good experience. But I think she was probably okay now that I'm thinking about it and talking about it. She was probably the biggest turning point in how in the people, the types of people that I met and surrounded myself with, because she was very spiritual, just a, you know, those pleasant people to be around, they're uplifting, they're encouraging, they're supportive, they're just naturally good people that want to see the best in everybody. And it was such a positive influence in my life at that moment in time, because I was, you know, 20, 21, kind of like trying to figure out what career choice I wanted to make. And so, um, and everybody that she came into contact with was exactly the same. I mean, they were all working, you know, all entertainers. And so they were just up, uplifting and positive and just had their own personal spiritual practice. She got me on like the regular healthy routine of eating better and working out every day. And so um, I think it was just one of those major turning points that sent me in my direction in my path. So yeah, now that we got into that. <laughs> Yeah. And if you ever want to look her up, her, she's Tina Marie and she's based out of Las Vegas. <laughs> Tina Marie from Las Vegas. <laughs> we'll look her up right now. Oh, man. Yeah. No, <laughs> that's really cool. I had no idea. This is Tina Marie. Yeah, so I would I would help her out with on stage uh, stuff as well as off stage. So we would handle like the business part, the filming, um, traveling. Uh, it was I was mainly her full time assistant, and it was a lot of fun. <laughs> That's interesting because your your life experience is shaped, and I'd say what it sounds like is there's a gap. Like, so you did this when you're, you know, in college, but then you did the athletic training and then you came back to this thing that you realized this is really where I want to be. And then now just even talking about it here, you're realizing, oh, that was a big key point, a turning point. And it's just interesting that, that we get put in places at certain times, you know, nobody ever wants to deal with a kid dying, but we had a kid die and perform CPR and it, and it changed a lot of things in the way that I look and treat people, but it also changes the stories that I, I'm able to tell. And it was right at the time that in the AT cares was coming about and we were working on creating and building something and, um, it, just the life experiences, the way they shape you and they uh, allow you to practice as an athletic trainer more efficiently. So. Exactly. Well, and then making, making it commonplace to talk about emotions was huge for me. Um, because I think that I was starting to get a better understanding of the pressures from coaches. And it was, you know, it was a common theme for athletes to not want to say when they were injured or to say that something was wrong because they were going to be viewed differently from their teammates and from their coaches. 
Um, and I think that was, that was a big deal. And I was having a hard time understanding, like, why can't you just tell me that something's wrong? Like, why are your coaches treating you differently because something's wrong? Like that shouldn't be how it is. Um, and so I was, I was having a very difficult time accepting the way that that was. Um, and so it was, I would talk to the coaches, I would talk to the athletes and we would have to like come to a common base or an understanding, like we're all in the care of our athletes. The game is the game. The sport is the sport. The sport's always going to be there. They're going to have these opportunities, but right now in this moment, they're not okay. And they think that they're not going to be able to play for the rest of the season if something's wrong or that you are going to punish them because something's wrong, whether it's emotional punishment or just self-perceived punishment. Right. And so um, that's kind of how that grew. And I didn't know that I was going to make this my PhD focus. I didn't think I was going to be in the depths of it like I am now, but like, I'm thankful that I am because I, I'm hoping by contributing and talking like to, you know, professionals like you guys and just making it more known and more commonplace for us to be able to talk about these things. And I think that's the transition that the sports industry is going. And I hope that it continues to go down that path, especially like, you know, with the coaching culture, with coaching by fear and everything that's being, you know, brought out into the open with those sorts of environments with college settings. So, um, yeah, I'm hoping that it continues from there. Uh, you brought up like something interesting, kind of that that struck a chord with the athletes, um, and with we'll talking them and, and through injuries, and they and they tend to tend, to, you know, they're afraid to either say something about their injury, and they're thinking about the season and thinking about then, you know, and that's one thing I've 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 kind of seen and found myself, you know, uh, addressing with you know athletes and injuries is they 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 go from zero to hundred in their head really quick. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, and that's, that's something I feel like is, is really common where they start looking ahead and they start thinking about the rest and kind of forget to focus on, you know, the, the things that we can kind of control and the kind of the here and now. And so that's a, that's a conversation I have. I just had a conversation with that, with an athlete of mine yesterday. And I mean, he was just like already, you know, at the end of the, at the end of the book, chapter 52, and I'm like, hey, let's 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 read chapter yeah. one first. Oh no! Chapter two, and then mm-hmm. you know, and but you know, and so that that you know that strikes a chord because that's something that I've, you know, I, I see a lot, and I think it's really easy for athletes to to go instantly to the try to get to the end of the story and look at worst case scenario, and it's you got to kind of reel them back in. And again, and then use our experience and every and use our tools and our experiences to kind of bring them back to um, the present and kind of change their mindset in that moment to just mm-hmm. focus on, on the here and now. Cause that's something that I've, I've, I've seen happen quite a bit. Yeah. And I mean, we, we can get caught up too. We can, uh, you know, be, when we get our witty banter going with our athletes and we're like, don't be so dramatic or that's not what's going to happen. You know, it, it, it really is what they're experiencing. And, um, like we, we, we want to give it a playful aspect without demeaning, um, or downplaying what they're experiencing. So just being accepting of their emotions and like, yeah, this is what they're catastrophizing. That tends to happen. And it, if we're more used to it than normal, then we don't need to make fun of it. Right. And just being, um, acknowledging their, uh, perceptions and kind of just guiding them like, okay, 
that's going to be worst case scenario, but we don't even know what's wrong with you yet. So let's just do this little evaluation to get a better understanding of where we're at. And then if I think you should go see the doctor, I mean, you know, we, we walk them through the steps. Like these are the baby steps we're going to take to double check. Like we have no idea yet. So it's not going to do you any good. It's not going to do me any good or the team any good if you're overreacting to the situation. So I think uh, that's exactly what, where we play the, you know, a really integral uh, role for that. And, and every person's a little bit different with their, you know, obviously with, you know, psychological risk factors, as far as like how we address them and how, how they deal with. And it's, uh, you know, it's, you've got to basically use your, I mean, your experiences, you know, clinically, obviously always tailored toward the orthopedic side of things, but even uh, on the psychological part, that's, mm-hmm. that's something that's every athlete, and you know this, but it's just, it's every athlete's different. Every yeah. person, you know, you talk to every person, you kind of have to a little bit differently. Um, and some of them are more open, some of them are more reserved, some of them you can read easier, some of them you can't. And so it gets kind of a, uh, you know, it just becomes harder to navigate that. And so I think it's really important to like, just to, a well, a get experience, but b um, being able to recognize those. And if you can't, because some of us, you know, like Jeremy was saying earlier, some of us, you know, maybe don't see it, but that's okay. Um, yeah. I think you know, I think at least just knowing about those potential risk factors and educating, um, you know, obviously athletes on the resources available, you know, there and making sure that there is support and help, you know, needed um, sure. if they, you know if they need it, then mm-hmm. that's something that's, you know, I think is always good to at least uh, make sure that the athletes informed about and educated on. Totally. Well, but. and I think too, it's extremely important for us as athletic trainers to have our own. Um, and that, I mean, this is part of my study that I'm working on is creating a survey for athletic trainers as well, athletic therapists as well um, to get a per, it's like a perception survey um, of mindfulness. So how many athletic trainers are aware of mindfulness? How many actually practice it themselves? Um, to Because, you know, <laughs> being emotionally apt is not everybody's forte, but we can practice those things. We can learn those things. Um, and it's not something that we're going to be taught in our undergrad. It's learned through experience, um, whether it's personal or career-wise. Um, and then taking those courses that kind of where we're looking in to identify our own um, emotions and accepting them and, and acknowledging them without judgment, which is my, which is what mindfulness is based on. And then being able to do that for somebody else or teaching them to be able to do that. And then that makes it easier for our athletes to be able to describe what's going on and be aware of what they're experiencing to communicate better with us as practitioners. Um, so I think that that's going to be a goal of mine as well is to help athletic trainers, um, you know, dive into their psychological practice and mental health a lot better as well, because I know burnout is obviously a thing in athletic training. And so if we're not handling our mental health as well as our physical health, how are we helping our athletes? Um, and that kind of just is what we project. Right. So, yeah. Right. Right. No, exactly. hundred percent. And I think that's, I think that's great. I think that's, you know, accurate. Yeah. How can we, you know, if we can't learn to identify psychological factors within ourselves and address them and, you know, try to make changes on our own personally, how do we now, you know, help athletes that could potentially be going through 
the same thing, you know, mm-hmm. and those, those are things, I mean, yeah, I think something like that would be, would be great because it is vital and it is important. And, it, you know, I don't think necessarily a lot of clinicians, um, you know, have, you know, I mean, not, I want to say don't have time, but, you know, you get, sometimes you get so busy where you just, you don't want to, you know, focus or think about that stuff because it's just extra work, mm-hmm. you know, as the way that they look at it. But, you know, certainly um, being able uh, yeah. to, to help clinicians understand that to better at least relate to the athlete and or we'll just patient because you know different settings but yeah well and i think time i think time is like the number one excuse for doing anything right like we never have enough time to do this we have never we never have enough time to research um and i think if it's part of our core practice um then we make time for it and i think that the side psychological side of things is part of our core practice like that's a huge part um, and so we kind of have to like schedule that block, whether it's before bed or in the evenings when we're doing our research or we're looking over um, cases or are, you know, updating our soap notes, things like that, like take 10 minutes for yourself to just be still um, and looking at it like that, like how are you incorporating stillness or just, you know, no thoughts throughout the day um, and kind of go from there to see how everybody does it. So it's, yeah. yeah. So on, on just a real quick note, I know um, Headspace during 2020 has like a, the free premium subscription for healthcare providers. Um, you'd probably, you'd have to Google it, or I know it's like sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash Headspace. And I think I have the info link there. And honestly, without using that Headspace app where it's talking about allow those thoughts to drift in and out and, you know, just think, focus on your breathing. I truly would be lost when it comes to stuff like that. And I don't do it all that often. Um, but I do it some and then, but I still use that. Like when I'm trying to fall asleep, I count my breaths and it allows me to kind of let go of whatever thoughts I was doing. So all that is fantastic reminder, especially right now is busy. And I was saying at the beginning where I had yesterday was pretty hectic because of the whole COVID exposure and trying to, you know, have like an emergency backup plan for games and things that were going to go on or possible varsity games without athletic trainers and things like that. Um, Shana, moving a little bit towards what you're seeing in your research, what can you tell us about what you're finding? Maybe some interesting facts, maybe some shocking things about what you have found so far. Um, so <laughs> I, last year I, uh, wrote a paper for, it's a critically appraised topic and, um, I'm still waiting to hear back from the journal because it was the first critically appraised topic that they'd ever seen with, with systematic reviews. Um, cause normally you take a couple of randomized control trials because it's a small area of research. And then you kind of develop this little 10 pager for clinicians to be like, oh, this is an issue. This is how we address it. And now I can put it into applied practice. Um, so the fact that we originally thought this was a small area of research is actually, um, you know, for the prediction side of things, it's pretty profound. There's, um, you know, the original stress and injury model was established in the 80s by Williams and Anderson. And that was, uh, you know, basically depicting three different constructs. It was coping coping resources, personality, and history, injury history, and kind of funneling, funneling those down into the stress response. And that was the mediator between all of those categories into uh, injury. 
And um, then they have the intervention that goes underneath the stress response. And so by using an intervention to mediate the stress response, you therefore can potentially reduce risk of the injury outcome. Um, then more recently, uh, there was a biopsychosocial model that was developed as an extension um, that kind of has like four different constructs. It has the psychophysiological, it has just the physiological, and then it has the behavioral mechanisms, and then it funnels into negative health, potentially negative health outcomes as well as injury. Um, so by, you know, trying to some of the research has identified at-risk athletes by doing uh, questionnaires that are based on the original stress, stress and injury model. And then when you identify at-risk athletes, then doing a, a psychological or psychosocial based uh, intervention with those athletes to decrease their risk for injury. But most of the research for intervention uh, programs are actually geared towards all athletes. Like every athlete can benefit from a psychosocial intervention because it's going to help them develop coping mechanisms. It's going like, I mean, the things we've talked about with mindfulness, being able to recognize um, inside intrinsic factors that may be potentially causing them further injury risk without them even realizing it. And with college athletes or with any student athletes, you're looking at a lot of pressures that don't necessarily involve particularly sport. Um, and sports psychologists, you know, they've mainstayed their um, interventions to reduce competitive anxiety or something that's directly related to sports performance. And so the whole realm of in intervening for the purpose of re re reducing injury risk is more new. Um, and so the there's been the systematic, the most recent systematic review was done by Gledhill and colleagues, and that was done in 2018. And he found 14 studies that were within that stress and injury model and also outside of it to make sure he, could, they, he didn't miss any sort of randomized control trial that might have been from a different perspective. Um, so anything from cognitive behavioral therapy, imagery, a video awareness program, all showed significant effects on reducing injury, um, whether it was competitive or practice-based. And so, um, I mean, then you can get into the types of injury. Like I think they uh, are sort of hypothesizing that overuse injuries are the ones most uh, recognized being associated with anxiety and depression, because when you hang on to stress or you hang on to depression and it, you know, it builds and it builds and it builds, it, has that physiological side effect that makes our bodies harder to recover from training sessions. So we could potentially be putting ourselves at risk for injury because our muscles aren't recovering. Uh, we're suppressing our immune system. Um, and those are more kind of like the long-term effects of stress. Um, and then you can think of like acute stress where you, your nervous system plays that role with the fight or flight. And so you have your muscle tissue tension, your peripheral narrowing, um, that all kind of plays into that acute moment on field stress that can potentially uh, put, set up someone for injury risk. Um, so providing those interventions to mm, mitigate cognitive appraisal of a stressor, like so changing someone's uh, perception of stress can really help reduce um, their risk factor. So, yeah, that's just a little bit I've gained so far. <laughs> Is that all? 
<laughs> now there's uh, more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Wow. No. And so with what, um, sorry, and this might be completely not necessarily on track, but with, with beginning on the research part of it, how, how, how long was your, just out of curiosity, how long was the duration of your research? How how long did you basically spend? For that paper particularly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, um, we started generating, uh, for formulating our question, oof, January. Um, and then I finally got it submitted after several edits in um, mid July. So, and I think the reason that we're waiting to hear my supervisor had emailed the, um, the editor in chief and they said, we don't, we don't know how to process this because they're using systematic reviews, which I thought was funny because they actually have a template if you're using systematic reviews, like they have the template for the randomized control trials, how to break down mm -hmm. the different tables. And then they also have the ones that are, um, you're focusing on different categories for the systematic reviews. So, um, but you know, I included three systematic reviews, but narrowed it down to the one because it was the most uh, most recent. And it also included the same studies the previous two had used in their meta-analysis. So by using kind of like a blending of all of the articles, and then it was able to uh, provide an additional like two randomized control trials that had come out were published later than the other reviews. And that's why they didn't have them. Um, and then as well as an additional randomized control trial that was um, published in 2019 and it was a mindfulness-based intervention um, and so so far there's been two that we know of that are mindfulness-based interventions specifically with the intention of reducing injury risk and measuring before and after per season um, so that's kind of like where I would like to go but obviously we're going to be targeting a different population because the other two studies was professional um, athletes in Iran and uh male soccer players by Iverson. I have to double check the population yeah. for that, but I know yeah, that my population is different. So the more that we can, so, you know, obviously broaden that, the better. All right. So Shana, just talking about like being able to mentally process the stress and how do you think COVID has impacted people? Like have more people been injured because of the stress of COVID? Do you, is, do you have any of that information out yet? No. Okay. That's so funny because I'm actually speaking with my supervisor after our meeting. Um, and one of my thought processes is, you know, I started waking up and, you know, early mornings when I start thinking about my projects and making sure that I'm getting enough done and, you know, have a little bit of my stressful moments of like, how am I like, how is this changing my research? Because practices are canceled for the next month. Like they closed off sports again in Montreal. So, and then technically they don't have a season. So I can't measure injury risk with my programs because they're not at risk for injury. And their practice scenario is completely different because they're limited in their contact and they're limited in their time. So the injury risk exposure is not the same as it would have been if I were measuring it in a regular season. So we were trying to figure out what we were gonna do to transition and the survey is one of them, the virtual based mindfulness program is another, but then in my head, like the past few days is like, how can I incorporate the COVID situation? Because 
athletes who are used to exercising and moving and being around their teammates every day are now having to stay home, practice on their own and having meetings virtually. Um, so how does this play into the mentality of an athlete and how would this potentially um, expose them for further injury risk? Um, and my initial thought is they're actually reducing their injury risk right now because they don't have the same intensity of their practices or their training sessions because I think personally like in my mind they're not working towards something right now like they know that they may have a season in the winter but they may not this just depends on everything that happens so we're I we're trying to treat treat this as an official off season where they can take advantage of all of these things that they may not be focused on originally like if they're in the heat of a season they're not going to focus on a mindfulness training project they're not going to focus on extra strength training and like a true off season program um taking the time to make sure that their bodies are being well taken care of that they're getting enough sleep um and i think now is the best time to take advantage of all of that um, with everything going on. But I also think that there's sort of a catastrophizing mentality um, of a lot of people and not just athletes in general, but everyone is like, you know, thinking the worst of everything that's happening. Like, oh, what if this doesn't happen? Like we have these things scheduled. And so, you know, it just ends up cascading. And if I can provide, you know, that mindfulness training to, sort of reel everyone back and bring them back to, you know, like, as we talked about Eli, like what we can control right now. Like we, we know that the future is uncertain and we can't, we can plan the best that we can, but have to be flexible in knowing that it, it, it may change. And uh, unfortunately, I think for athletes that can be, you know, uh, detrimental to their career if uh, they're potentially looking at going professional or even high school athletes that want to play in college, but they're not getting the same exposure. So, I mean, there's a lot of things at play that um, they could be going through emotionally. Um, that is, is not the greatest, but the best that we can do to help them cope, uh, I think is the most I can do at this point. So no, I don't have information, but I'm thinking of incorporating some of that into the surveys. I know for, for me, you know, we've got a, a sports psychologist um, on the team who's, who's awesome. And when the whole COVID thing kind of hit in the, in the midst of it, we had developed a, uh, a, a little uh, information sheet handout that we had sent out to the athletes just something because obviously everyone struggles and handles it a little bit differently but that was something we kind of just he had put together and kind of sent it out there um just as uh an information piece to help you know those kind of you know cope through that time because like you said it's it's all over the place with these athletes as far as some going to college going professional and all different points in their lives and so that was uh that was something i thought was really cool that he ended up um putting together uh and i sent it out to some other teams and stuff like that just to kind of help but that was something I, I thought was a great idea to do with some of the athlete the athletics population yeah i'd Here. be interested in seeing that and maybe i can incorporate some of those questions yeah yeah i'll uh i'll dig it up okay see if i can get it sent your way awesome. all right i do have one other unrelated question but before we get to that do you have any any other like interesting finds anything we hadn't 
covered? Anything that maybe it's really important for us to, to know or to look forward to? The whole area has been a very interesting find. And I think uh, my biggest goal is going to be how, how can I help athletic trainers and other sports medicine practitioners really incorporate um, some of these things into their injury prevention practices. Um, and I think that was the main purpose of my critically appraised topic is you, you know, it, it's been shown that by incorporating some sort of psychosocial intervention, you're reducing your athlete's risk injury. And I'm a huge proponent of injury prevention because the more work we put in on the front end, the less we have to do on a treatment basis. And, you know, and to sell this to the coaches, like, look, if we do this, you're going to have your players, the same reasons that we sell, you know, certain warmups or tailored programming for their athletes is like, you're going to keep your athletes longer. You're going to have less injuries and you probably could have a more successful season. Um, so this is just one of those components that you know, that has been kind of overlooked as that part of that uh, program. So I'm, I think the more that I can do to help promote that and help uh, practitioners become more confident in their ability to uh, deliver these programs and educate their student athletes on this area. I think the, the more successful our profession is going to become and the more successful our athletes are going to be um, not as just athletes and competitive players, but also as citizens in their community and their relationships with people. So I think it's just, you know, it's that overall holistic approach to our athletic care that we should be providing or working with someone that is experienced in those um, categories that can also provide more to our uh, practice and create that connection with other uh, providers as well. So um, I think that's the most important takeaway that I'm getting so far and want to continue to provide and uh, contribute to the scientific uh, research area with that. So looking at our last period athletics, we have about 45 minutes or we have probably 30 kids coming in, either needing tape or rehab or injury evaluation or foam rolling, stretching. During that time, there's the two of us working, like I said, for about 45 minutes with about 30 kids trying to get them to practice or rehab, you know, summer surgeries, that kind of thing. How, how can we incorporate the mindfulness into that time? Is there a simple tool that's out there now? Um, I, I would say that if you, there are apps, obviously like the students can download the apps and if they were to so choose to take 10 minutes before their practice to practice and use the guided meditation or mindfulness apps, they could, um, in that time frame, I would say our, our first and primary focus is getting athletes ready for practice. Um, and so like the more acute injuries are going to take more precedence than the ones that are post-surgical. So I would say like with your post-surgical athletes, you could incorporate mindfulness with their treatment, walk them through breathing techniques while you're doing ultrasound, walking them through breathing techniques while, um, they're doing a specific exercise, um, they're, you know, or just incorporate five minutes during their rehab program. Like they do all their exercises and then before they get their treatment, they do their mindfulness. 
Um, and then that's just written into their program sheet, right? Or their exercises, like becoming, making that more of a, a part of their program, I think is gonna make it easier for you to deliver as well as them to um, say, oh, I need to do this. Like this, I have to do this to get better um, and getting that mentality shift going. Um, as far as like doing it more on like a team wise, I think bringing the coaches in or like your preseason meetings, talking that, to them about like, hey, I think that we should be incorporating this with your athletes. Would you be willing and like selling it to them? Would you be willing to dedicate 10 to 15 minutes before practice, after practice to um, deliver these programs? And coaches can deliver a mindfulness program. You just have to give it to them. Um, so I think uh, that's where we can right now in the short term be able to try and squeeze and work our way to making that shift into our care. I think that's, I don't know why I've never thought about that, but it would be super easy just like if I have headspace on my the computer, I say, okay, hey, Susie, you're part of your deal today is your, while you're doing your complex quad uh, or even just your complex recovery, then we're going to play this. Don't worry about the leg. It's, it's already working with the machine. Mm -hmm. So you're just going to sit and listen, no matter what else is going on, you get five, 10 minutes incorporated into the middle of practice and, and writing that in as part of it. Now, obviously it's not going to completely work because you're, you know, unless, unless I have them download it and do headphones. Yeah. But if I wanted to do it like in the athletic training room, just saying here, follow this program, then that could work too is where, okay, focus on listening to, to the stereo, focus on the five minutes of mindfulness. You're, you're just kind of clearing your mind while you're leg is already doing the work doing the treatment uh that's that's a really cool idea and seeing you know possibly we do use a lot of foam rollers and so maybe it's something where we have that speaker set up okay guys while you're foam rolling we're just going to do two minutes of uh foam rolling with mindfulness and they're still being able to just clear their thoughts so definitely an interesting concept or, or possibility to incorporate that and it may it may be something that we have to incorporate you know it 3.30 instead of at 2.45 whenever the huge rush is and we just mm -hmm. do it with those few kids try it out mm -hmm. and things like to that. To start yeah exactly and then you know I think if you see if you do it with your kids that are obviously not practicing and you have more time with them then the other students are going to notice what they're doing and they're going to wonder and ask questions and then that's when you can obviously you're, that's opening the dialogue right for the interests and so like if you want to do this too you need to come in during this time, or you can come in after practice and I'll sit with you and do it or make an appointment with you throughout the day. If they have a free period and you're a full-time athletic trainer or during their lunch hour um, to come in and sit with you and do those things. Um, so, I mean, just piquing their interest because if that athlete's doing it, then they're going to want to do it too. So right now, say our football team, they have like a little stereo out there that they kind of, they play music during practice. Mm -hmm. Would, would incorporating that at the end of practice say, okay, we're all done. Everybody's done. Okay, everybody lay down on the grass and we're going to do five, ten minutes of mindfulness, right? So it's going to be different with high school boys and, you know, they're going to be operative exactly. first. But yeah. it would be something that we could potentially do right then, right? It doesn't have to be before practice. Oh, exactly. No, I mean, if um, I, my ideal situation is like the last 15 to 20 minutes, they're they're doing yoga or static stretching and they're doing some sort of reflection anyways and just being in themselves to reflect on how practice went. And then that's when you could also incorporate the mindfulness or doing the guided meditation like, OK, you've done your stretches. Now we're just going to lay down and be quiet. <laughs> 
um, and, you know, sort of have that going and create that routine and that stigma to be like, this is what we're doing because this is what research shows help and you're going to recover better. You're going to sleep better. You're going to make better choices. You're going to appraise your stressors differently. Your reactions on the field are going to be different. Like it just makes them all around a better player. And if that's how you sell it and say, and, you know, promote it to the coaches and integrate it like this. So if I'm doing your injury prevention program as a whole, like your warmups should be this and your cool downs should be this, right? And that's what we have the most knowledge of doing. Um, and so that's, I think, the best way to kind of sell it, promote it, and integrate it. All right. So I think the last question here is, you are working on your PhD. You you just started a personal training, like a business, an online business, right? Uh, you're doing lots of different things there. You're also staying fit. You're adventurous. Uh, you're moving across the country. What are you personally doing? What does your personal mindfulness look like? Um, so, well, since I've um, started the program, I'm actually like doing formal practice where it's a 30 minute body scan. And so it just takes you up and down and walks you through like paying attention to your toe, paying attention to the arch of your foot, like paying specific attention to different parts of your body because everybody carries stress differently or in different areas of the body. And it could manifest into a particular uh, joint based on our injury history. Um, so I practice yoga almost every day, uh, 30 minutes during our lunchtime. And we actually established that while being at COVID. So the whole family at noon, we stop work, we come out, we do yoga, um, uninterrupted sometimes, sometimes there's phone calls, but we can't help that. So, um, you know, just trying to tell myself and making it okay with like, I'm allowed to do these things. Like this should be part of our normal practice. Like why we feel bad for taking time for ourselves has been unnecessarily negatively projected. And for some reason, like we always feel bad that we can't just sit still for 30 minutes. We feel like we should always be doing something or we feel bad that we're not cleaning or we're not being productive in our work. Um, So be (laughs) making it more acceptable to take that time for ourselves because then that makes us just better people in general and a more positive uh, world, uh, essentially. So yeah, that's where I'm at with my personal practice. (laughs) All right. We mentioned the fact that Shauna is an athletic trainer. She's currently working towards her PhD, working also towards becoming an athletic therapist because in Canada, an athletic trainer, like we've done those podcasts with the World Federation. So there's athletic therapist there in Canada. And so she's working towards that certification as well. One of the partners that I have with the podcast is physicaltherapy.com where you can do physicaltherapy.com slash one free course. And I haven't even, I haven't looked to see, but there may be courses about mindfulness and teaching mindfulness, mindfulness and things like that. So um, as an athletic therapist, do you still have to get like BOC CEUs or is that like you have to do stuff for athletic training and then you have to do different things for the athletic therapist? Um, so I, uh, I'm right now I'm provisional since the exam, there's national certification exam was, uh, canceled for June. Um, it's rescheduled in January. So they allowed me to be considered provisional. Um, and so I'll sit for the exam in January, but as far as like continuing education, majority of, uh, the state's CEUs are can transfer and count as. Um, the CEUs for athletic therapy. I think they are a little bit less. I want to say they're 25 CEUs every two years. Um, So it's not as significant, but, you know, athletic therapy is a a lot smaller up here 
um, and, you know, still developing. So I think that might, might change. So movement matters on Instagram. That's probably going to be the best place to find Shauna. Any, any other way that you would like for people to reach out and contact you? Um, my, uh, through my link tree on movement matters, uh, it has my website, um, that you can visit to check out all the programs I offer. Um, one of them being the complete athlete program where I actually like, that's one of my ways of promoting it within the athletic training world is to go to high schools, go to, uh, different sporting programs and kind of deliver this all in one, uh, complete athlete, uh, day like it's a day program and then i take the athletes through all of the different aspects that go into being a, a well-developed athlete and i encourage the athletic trainers to participate as well as the coaches and they help develop the full days uh segments but um we can talk about that later but um so my website and then i'm also on facebook as well typically if someone's going to search your name like every time i do I, it auto it auto corrects to the s-o-n so it's shauna eric Sin. Sin with an because E-N I'm Danish. and not the yes. O-N. Obviously, yes. in the sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash psychological risk factors, I'll have the links to to get a hold of Shauna there. But mvmt.matter, so movement matters on Instagram, is a great way to get hold of Shauna there. And she posts a lot of content. And some, Like I said, her stories where she was talking about falling off the bike off the side of the mountain, things like that. Um, Eli <laughs> Kasab also known as the AT TikTok, AT Twitter type, <laughs> type guy. So super popular on social media there. So E-L-I-K-A-S-S-A-B. So Eli Kasab, any other way you want people to get a hold of you? Uh, Anything. Just Google. No, I mean, yeah. Just Google my <laughs> name. I'm, I'm all over social. So uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, uh, everything. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all just my name nothing creative <laughs> if you want to uh sponsor some leggings for you know movement matters all across the leggings get eli to do a tiktok there you go working Sweet. on some sponsors. i will rock those you will rock those get some... <laughs> actually you know it's funny because eli talks about one one of the athletes that he he just met said oh you're the at tiktok guy right so it, it's popular it's popular yeah you go. get some sponsored I, pants <laughs> you'll just take a look through it you'll know what we're talking about shauna so i on instagram social media like most places i'm either mr jeremy jackson or sports medicine broadcast and obviously if you're a regular listener then you know how to get to sportsmedicinebroadcast.com and again this one is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash psychological risk factors which i always have trouble spelling psychological anyway so just get it close and we'll go from there so for jeremy Shauna, Eli, Movement Matters, and the Sports Medicine Broadcast. That is a wrap. Thanks.